Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are in the book of Nehemiah. If you want to grab your Bible, we always have some in the back if you need one. But Let me recap just fairly quickly here on this book. You might remember Nehemiah was in the upper echelon. He was the the king's cupbearer. He was the second in command. He's the king's bodyguard over in Persia. And his his brother and some friends went to Israel, and and as they came back, they were they were like, man, Nehemiah, the, 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 or he actually overheard them talking about Israel and just how bad it was. The, the walls had been torn down. The, you know, basically, it was free reign. The enemies were attacking. They could come in and do anything at any time. And Nehemiah just, you know, just was impacted by this because this was God's land. This was, this was where God resided here on earth. This was the Holy of Holies where it should be. The temple needed to be rebuilt. All these things needed to happen. And Nehemiah was so distraught that he prayed about it for four months. He refrained from eating at the, you know, the best of the best of the food at the king's table for that time. And he finally went into the king and said, what? I need to go back home. I need to go back to the land of my forefather, uh, forefathers and rebuild the, the walls. And the king said, okay. So this is where we're at. He's gone back, and they're, they're, they've, they've gotten to a point where they've rebuilt the wall. And let's, let's pick it up in Nehemiah 7, verse 1. It says, After the wall had been rebuilt, and I had the, uh, I'd set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, and, or Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, but, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some of them at their posts and some near their own homes or houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were a few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogy record of those who had been on the first return. This is what I found written there. These are the people of province who came up from captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each to his own town. Now, I dug around on my pictures from Israel, and I did find uh, uh, the, the best picture I had of, of Nehemiah's wall. 
This, this wall literally was uncovered as, as generations have happened, as Jerusalem has been destroyed multiple times. Basically, they would just like pile everything down and start building their homes from that point upward. So as they dig down in modern ages for foundation of roads and everything else, they find all sorts of things. And this is literally the wall that Nehemiah had rebuilt that, that, that originally was Hezekiah's wall. Hezekiah had, had built this, and, and it was destroyed, and he'd rebuilt it. And, and I want you to get a sense. That wall is about 15 to 20 foot wide. So don't think of, oh, this little four-foot wall, or this little, you know, like our walls here, that, you know, it's what a good, you know, foot wide maybe, 10 inches maybe. No, these walls were huge. And they would take huge stones and, and little stones, and they would pack them all in, and they would do their own mortar, and they would build this. So for 52 days... They were working on rebuilding this wall for miles and miles. So it took everybody there. They had to set up the the boundaries and protection. It took seven and a half weeks from start to finish. Man, I can't even get a project done at my house in seven and a half weeks, half the time. But when it's done, he turns over the maintenance and protection of Israel with specific instructions and we think, oh man, you know, he's, he's got to be tired. He's been working, he's been ahead of this project. He just needs a vacation. No, no, no. He doesn't need a break. He's wrapping up this project that he's on so he can move on to the next project. That's what he's doing. He knows that, that he should be working on other things, which leads us to another principle. As we've been going in this list in, in the book of Nehemiah, different effective uh, leadership principles. Uh, uh, number, number 42, effective leaders delegate at the right time and the right way. He assigns work to someone who is qualified for the job. Hanani is Nehemiah's brother. And, and we don't really know if it's like brother-brother or cousin-brother because they use the same word in, in Hebrew for both. Uh, so we know that they're related but, but we, we, we see the relation here, and he puts him in charge. And also uh, Hananiah, who is a man of integrity, feared, by, uh, feared God more than most men do. Now, the only way that, that Nehemiah understood that this man feared God more than most people did is to know this guy and to know his, his, his brother or his cousin. He had to spend time with them to know these things. And he just didn't hand it over. He just didn't drop it in the lap and say, okay, I'm done. I'm washing my hands. I got other things to do. See you later. He gave them instructions on how he wanted them to do stuff and what he wanted them to do. He knew that once it was built, it would need to be maintained. And he couldn't do that. The enemy will try to, uh, to get through it. The enemy will try to destroy it. The enemy will try to go over it, especially at night. And I've learned one thing. Anything you build, you have to maintain, or it'll, it'll just fall apart. Anything you buy, you will have to maintain. There are certain things that need to be done to items that you own. And in a sense, he's taken ownership of this wall. Now, a good leader will check in with these guys. Are they doing it the way he wants it done? Nehemiah could have, you know, stayed and just looked after the wall and just, you know, the rest of his life, he could have just looked, you know, I'm going to maintain this wall. This is what I'm going to be doing. Are they doing it the way I want it done? You know, uh, the question it really is not what Nehemiah could do, because he could stay looking after that wall, but is what should Nehemiah be doing? See, there's a big difference between what we could do and what we should do. 
especially in this world. This is where we have to stop and ask ourselves and pray. What should I be putting you know, the, the most of my time? What should I be putting the most of my energy and my effort into right now? Where should I be right now? Very talented people, or, or semi, even semi-talented people, have, you know, have multiple giftings, and they have, mul- they have a really hard time with this. Because, you know, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. Um, I, you know, over the years, I, I love to learn different things, so I've learned enough about electricity to get myself in trouble, but I can do it. I, you know, I've, I've torn up a couple of walls. I've learned that you don't take a chisel and, you know, a piece of wood and work with, uh, work with a piece of wood while holding the wood in your hand. Why? The chisel will go through your thumb all the way down to bone. I've learned certain things over the years. But, I, you know, in a sense, in fact, I, I had to build a 12-foot gate this last week. And a couple of friends of mine happened to pop by the house, and, and one of the guys just looked at me. He goes, is there anything that you can't do and part, you know, so my, my obvious answer is, no, I can do everything. That was a joke. There's lots of things that I can't do. And there's lots of things I shouldn't try to do. But, I, you know, I, I love to learn, so I try to do these things, but it can get you in trouble. A gifted person can have trouble focusing, especially if you're like me. You, you know, uh, you can be pulled in many different directions, easily pulled. If you're a gifted person and you have trouble focusing, it's going to be difficult for you to commit to something and to stick with it. You will have to go to the Lord and say, what should I be putting my focus on? Because if we don't, we will waste years of our lives doing things that we should not be doing, the wrong things. You have to remember, it's not what you could do, it's what you should do. See, could is the enemy of should. Good is the enemy of great. Scattered is the enemy of being focused in life. You know, you can take a a very powerful laser beam. And I tell you, this laser beam can go through lots of stuff. I mean, this laser beam, I mean, just imagine... I can't even think of the old movie. Uh, There was a movie in the 80s about laser beams and and college career. Anyway, I, I should say focused, I know. But you can take a very powerful laser beam that's really focused... And you can spread that beam out, and it becomes ineffective. That's how we are as Christians. God would want us focused on certain things, yet we spread ourselves out, and we become ineffective in life. We just become a pretty laser beam. Is that what we want to be, just pretty people? Gifted people end up doing too many, too many things. Why? Either because they can... Are they doing what everybody else thinks they should be doing? Nehemiah has not been teaching us to, to ask the king, what could I do? Israel's a mess. Israel's, they need somebody there. What can I do? No, the king said, what do you want to do? And he came in, I should do this. And the king said, yes, go for it. He gets the wall done in 52 days, and then he's on to other things. He's moved on because he didn't assume that God was done with him, or that God wanted him to look after the wall. He didn't assume all these things. He, he, he said, God, do you have other plans for me? See, too often we allow other people to determine our course in life. Why? Man, it's so much easier when somebody says, you know, Alan, you should be doing this. 
Or, you know, so-and-so, you should be doing this. I really think you ought to be doing this. And we're like, sounds good to me, okay. And we just follow right along. Because it's easier that way. When we become an adult, we need to get to a point where we, where we start charting our own course. And we need to ask God, is this the course you want me on? There are many scriptures that talk about, you know, the, the course of man, uh, the steps of man. The Lord will direct the steps of man when he is committed to the Lord, the psalmist says. And this is the hope that I have for you, that when the wall is done in your life, whatever project the Lord is, you know, has for you, that when that ends, you ask the Lord, what now, instead of staying right there? Because too often we stay right there. Now, the flip side of this is we can't ignore the Lord for 40 years and then come to a crossroads and say, Lord, I need an answer today in 20 minutes. And the Lord's going, where have you been? You know, and you're going, well, I, you know, I've been, you know, I gave an offering this week. I've been to church two weeks in a row, Lord. I need an answer. We have to get to know God. We have to have a relationship with Him, the God of eternity, the God of all time. And when we give, ourself, you know, give of ourselves a little bit more, he will start to direct our paths. Well, all right. Some of you might say, well, Alan, I'm ready to complete this wall and move on. But, man, this 52 days, how about 52 years? That's the path I've been on. Or, or how, about, how about, you know, 20 years or 20 months? You know, but I say that is not the issue. The issue is, have you finished what you started? Have you finished the thing that God has put you on? So you can't move on to a new project just because you're bored with the one you're working on right now. You can't do that. We have to look at certain tasks and, and think long term. You know, raising my child, Brandon, man, I, you know, I'd love to be able to go, oh good, he made it to 22 months, I don't have to worry anything more, I, I don't have to parent at all from this point forward. He made it to 22 months. You can't just give up the task the Lord has assigned you. When you have children, you have a task to raise them as God would raise them. That's a long-term thing. We hold back from God, not because of fear, but usually timing. Usually we're very emotional about things. And we can't make emotional decisions about life because that gets us in trouble. We want so much to get out of the rut we're in. We will make any mistake just to get out of it. Where if we would just wait on God, man, that would just be a huge thing. See, a rut could be a good thing or a bad thing. You know what a rut is? I mean, most everybody knows what a rut is. The term kind of comes from the Old West where the wagons were, were built in, in certain paths. In fact, you can go to Colorado and stuff and, and there's the Chisholm Trail going up north and all that that literally the, the mud has, has petrified and you can still see the ruts from the wagons from back then. Okay, A rut keeps you there. A rut keeps you from turning right or to the left because it won't allow the wheel to... I mean, some of these ruts, I'm not joking, are about three foot thick. That's how big the wheels were. That's the kind of rut we're talking about. A rut can be good or bad. A rut keeps you faithful in your marriage. Two married people in the same rut is a good thing. You know, a rut can keep you at the same time from doing what the Lord wants. If you're stuck in a rut 
and you're not willing to, to work to get out of it, willing to get your will going the other direction, God will say, I need you over here. And you're like, no, I can't go because I'm right here. I'm in this rut. You have to ask the Lord, is this rut for me or not? Have you seen the movie October Sky? Some of you have. It was, you know, it's been out for, for a few years, but it's a story of Homer Hickam. He lived in Colwood, West Virginia, and in 1957, he was a high school senior. The Russians had launched Sputnik, you know, the first satellite that, that orbited the Earth. And our president appealed to the competitive nature of the U.S. and it started the space race to the moon. And he said, we're going to beat, we're going to beat them to the moon. We're going to beat the Russians there. Homer heard JFK's speech. So his dream was to become a rocket scientist. Well, in Colwood, West Virginia, the only way to get out of that town was either because you were a great football player, you had a great mind in business, or you went to the coal mine. That was where your three choices, pretty much. But Homer, man, this, this rut was, you know, this was a rut for him. But for his dad, this was a good rut. Both of them were in the same rut. His dad was the leader of the mine. His dad was well-respected. He cared about those that he worked with. He helped those that were around town. He did it all, you know, a lot of times without telling other people he was helping people. Man, this was a good rut for him. Man, but Homer, this was not. But his dad couldn't see that. What was good enough for me, son, is good enough for you. That was the attitude. So get down there in that mind. But Homer, he kept rebelling, kept going out with his buddies to shoot rockets, and, and there's a whole you know, bigger story there. So what happens is this. Through life circumstances, Homer had to give up his dream for a while. And he, you know, he, had, he was almost out of this rut, out of the mine, when his dad was injured. So Homer had to go work in the mine for a while. And the whole time he kept dreaming, he kept believing, even though no one believed in his dream. Finally, Homer got his break from God. He won a National Science Merit Scholarship at this conference. And Warner Von Braun, which is a big rocket guy back then, actually met him at that time. And he went on to, to, to you know, study rocket science and, and engineering, all this stuff. And he ended up working for NASA. And, and he's still there today, working for NASA. And he's one of the guys that helped NASA move forward, as, as many of those guys in that generation did. So you ask, why is he telling this story? Because I believe so many of us are like Homer. Feel like we're stuck in a rut. And the irony is one man's rut is another man's challenge. You stay here and maintain the wall. For Nehemiah, that was a rut. For Hananiah and Hananiah, it was the right rut. Nehemiah said, I'm not going to stay here and, you know, and, and, and after I finish this wall and maintain it because it's beneath me. No. It was because that's not what he was supposed to do in life. See, there's a, there's a victory in life that happens when we start to recognize a few things. That God would, would have us do well. Well in life. In only a few areas. We have to figure out what we need to weed out of our lives. The things that aren't supposed to be there. 
And some of us, the weeding will be easy. Man, the ground is moist. We see the weed. We just pull it up and we, we get rid of it. Of course, God doesn't want me to do that. But sometimes, pulling up that, you know, you know, pulling up something that is good, but Lord, why am I pulling this peach tree out of my life? Well, because I called you to have an orange tree there, Alan, not a peach tree. So pull it up. That's not, you see that orange tree there? It needs to go in where that peach tree is. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes the Lord has us pull something up that, that's good, and we, and we go, okay, well, who wants this peach tree? Lord, no one wants it, so I need to take care of it. Okay, Alan, then you won't be able to take the orange tree like I called you to take. Are you following me at all? Well, I can do, you know, I can do them all, Lord. I can do all of it. No, 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 no. I haven't called you to do all of that, to take care of all that. But Lord, what will other people think? They love this little tree of mine. What will they think if I take it out of the ground? Are you tracking with me at all, or am I off in la-la land? Okay, some of you are saying you're in la-la land. Okay, well, see, what other people think can keep us from greatness. Others will say, you're good at this, you're good at this, you're good at this. And some of them will be impacted by you deciding, I am not going to do something. They will not like your decision. I can't tell you how many times somebody's gotten mad at me for not starting something they wanted me to start. This is a valid thing to do, Pastor. Well, yes it is, but we don't have the people to do that right now. I'd love to, to, to start a daycare every day of the week, but who's going to work it? I can't work it the whole time. You know, I mean, there's, I mean, over the years, you know, and, and in your life, you'll hear this also. This is a very valid thing to do or to start. And they will get mad at you. Sometimes they'll even get all spiritual on you. There comes to a point for Homer to say, no, I'm not going into that mine anymore. Nehemiah did the same thing. The difference between could and should. This is what I could be doing. And this is what I should be doing. Lord, this is what I could do. But Lord, is this what I should do? See, I think the other thing that could have happened in Nehemiah, uh, to Nehemiah is this. He could have started taking credit for building that wall. He could have walked around and said, yeah, I see that wall. Man, that, that wall is like 15 foot thick. I did a great job, didn't I, getting everybody together? He could have taken the credit for doing that. And it would have been the death of him. When you do something great, you have to be careful not to take full credit for it. See, it's a dangerous thing when, when you accomplish something because you will want to take the credit and the enemy will, t- you know, will play a trick on you. And the trick is called giving you the credit. But see, Nehemiah didn't get, get, get caught in this trap. What did he say? Our enemies were afraid because of the work that, that has been done by me? No. Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. That's what Nehemiah said a little earlier to this. Nehemiah did not have to tell them this. They knew from his actions over the past two and a half months, or the past two months. How does Nehemiah do this? Well, it's through the different principles. Let's let's look at the the principles that that Nehemiah takes and kind of adds together as we've gone through some of them. Number 10, effective leaders know that they are blessed. Nehemiah knew he was blessed and he gave credit to God. Number 11, effective leaders never take credit. Number 17, effective leaders just tell the story. Well, let me tell you what it is. 
Number 36, effective leaders lead by example. Nehemiah, when he was faced with a challenge, he brings with him a recipe of leadership qualities. It's never just one. It's a combination. Number 39, effective leaders look to God for their reward. So in chapter 7, when Nehemiah's job is changing, he moves the entire team forward. He moves everybody up one level. He delegates stuff he's been doing for the past 52 days. He already has the guys who's going to take over this. And number 43 on our list, and again, I'll put this list all together as we get toward the end, but, but number 43 is effective leaders move the team forward. They don't just say, thanks guys, we're done, I'm gone. He says, okay, I need guys here and here, you and you, you're going to be doing this. And he moves everybody forward. He moves the whole group. So in verse 4, and and I I know you're amazed, we already reached verse 4 today. But in verse 4 it says, Now the city was large and spacious, but there are a few people in it, and the houses have not yet been rebuilt. So my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judea, each to his own home. So Nehemiah, he has this desire to to repopulate the land. He wants Israel to to be a great place again. His dream was, was not to be stuck next to this wall. His dream wasn't about a wall. His dream was the bigger picture. What is God trying to do in my life? Let's do a little history on Nehemiah real quick. He finished this book in 425 B.C. Now, way back before Nehemiah, in Daniel's day in 605 B.C., God's people had been conquered, and Nebuchadnezzar carried them off for the punishment of their sin. God said, I'm going to allow this other country to come in and really destroy your lives because you continually sin against me. Now, is our God the same way? Sometimes God allows things to happen in our lives, in a sense, to destroy us, to get us back to a point where we say, okay, God, I need your help. Help me. And we start rebuilding that relationship. And God's people had to rebuild their relationship. So later on, he allows them to come back. So in 538 B.C., about 100 years before Nehemiah, a guy named Zerubbabel brings some of them back started working on the temple. And by 516 B.C., they rebuilt the temple. Then after that, in 458 B.C., a leader named Ezra comes in. He brings a few back. And Ezra, instead of being the builder and all these things, he's a Bible scholar. And he's, you know, his big thing was pouring the Scripture into people. So when the next leader comes, they would be ready. So 18 years later, Nehemiah leads the third return of people. During the same time in history, you have Buddha living in India. You have Confucius in China. You have Socrates in Greece. See, these books in our Bible are actually, you know, out of order. You know, in in the Bible it goes Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra in in the English Bible. But it should be Ezra, then Esther, then Nehemiah. They were all contemporaries of one another, probably all living at the same time. Ezra is fixing to jump into the story, so we need to know he was alive. 
and Esther is, is either the queen of Persia at this point or the queen mother. Scholars kind of disagree on which one it is, but we know she was there at the time. So in 444 B.C., he finishes the wall and he starts the next project. He got the written record of the genealogies written 95 years ago by Zerubbabel. And he says in verse 7, In company with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, uh, these names, Mordecai, Bilashan, Mesperoth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Banah. The list of the men of Israel, the descendants of Parash, 2,172. That means through him and his kids, 2,172 men were alive. So think, you have to expand the families here because, I mean, they weren't like 2.4 children. They had multiple, I mean, they had large families. Think of Abraham. He had 12 sons, right? So you have all these things. You have uh, uh, verse 9 here, Shephanah, uh, 372. Ara, 652. And then skip down to verse 53. Bagbuk, I, I just love the name. That's the only reason why I had you on verse 53. Well, let's just skip the other two names. <laughs> the whole company numbered 42,360, besides their 700, I mean, 7,337 manservants and maidservants. They also had 245 men and women singers. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, 6,720 donkeys, 34 poodles, a riding lawnmower, and three chairs. I mean, they just... Just listed out everything. Basically, they're taking inventory here. And in verse 70, it says, Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governors gave to the treasury a thousand drachmas of gold, 50 bowls, and 530 garments for the priests. Some of the heads of the families gave the treasury for the work uh, 20,000 drachmas of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. The total given by the rest of the people were 20,000 drachmas of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 garments for priests. Now, as I started, you know, with all the politics going on and all that, as I started studying this, I noticed something. And it kind of drives with the rest of Scripture. It says the leaders as a group, these leaders represented 10 to 20% of the group, gave about 80 to 90% of what the other people gave. Did you catch that? I bring this up because everybody always talks about, you know, they've done all these Barna studies that, you know, 20% of the church gives 80% of the, the, the money for the budget and all that. And, you know, maybe what the Lord is talking about here is leadership. The leadership should be jumping in and working and tithing. And yet, for some reason, the American church gets all upset over all of this. What should the leaders of the church be doing? Leading. If you want to lead, you need to sacrifice for, for the organization. When others see you sacrifice, they follow. If you want to be the leader in your family, you need to sacrifice for your family. It's not all about me. You know, in, in our family units, we always, you know, it's all about me, right? No. The family needs to see you sacrifice. If you want to lead in whatever thing you're involved in, then sacrifice your time, effort, energy, and money. So as a leader, you would say, well, should I post what I give? Should everybody know what I give? 
No, 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 that's not, absolutely not. We don't want to know that. But this goes back to number 15 on the effective leaders list. Effective leaders commit themselves wholeheartedly to the task. And number 36, effective leaders lead by example. The leaders, the leadership gave collectively more than the others. And the wealthier, the ones that could afford it, gave more. Now, if you're giving more, I'm not saying, oh, you need to give more. That's between you and God. I'm just saying that this is what the scriptures say. The only time we bring up money around here is when, it's, you know, when we hit it in the scriptures. This principle is not from the church. This principle is not from me as the pastor. This principle is not from the fellowship of the church. This is from the Lord. So you have to ask, am I one of the wealthier ones? Well, if we lived in the Bay Area, that'd be a lot easier to, to figure out, wouldn't it? Around here, we're all sitting there going, I don't know any of us that are that wealthy. Well, that's between you and the Lord. It's a little harder. But the, when the Lord gets involved, you have to ask Him, no one else. And this leads us to principle 44. Effective leaders give generously and sacrificiously. If you are not the leader, then you don't sacrifice. And you don't become a leader until you do sacrifice. You're not the leader of your family until you sacrifice for your family. And I don't mean, well, I raised them for 20 years. I don't mean that either. You want to lead your family, keep sacrificing for your family. If you want to lead the team, you have to sacrifice. If you want to lead the company to become a great company, then you have to sacrifice whatever leadership you are in life. You have to sacrifice for that. Do you see where this is going? The leader has to be generous and to sacrifice. And Jesus would say, do this in a way that others don't know. See, God is is calling all of us to give more of ourselves to him. How do I know that? Because God is always wanting us to give more. But more in the right way, not the wrong way. More in the right stuff. Not because of a guilt trip. I never want somebody to give out of guiltiness. I'm telling you, I, you know, I'm not telling you where to give, what to give, who to give. I'm just telling you that God is calling you to sacrifice if you want to lead. If you want to grow spiritually, then open up everything to God. And this is the weird thing. He will let you keep most of it. But he's going to require a tithe from you, a piece of it, to, to give him first before you pay the bills, before you divvy everything up. And the Lord says, Lord, this is unto you. This is my first fruits. That's through the scriptures. I am asking you to bless it, and I'm asking you to bless me. Now, most churches, this is when the guy would pass a plate and say, give more. But we don't do that. This is what the Lord just had for us today. Now, starting next week, it's kind of interesting that this came in today because I was planning on starting this. I've talked to the elders and stuff. Starting next week, we're going to stop passing the offering plate in church. We have the two boxes in back, and we've got two more boxes we're going to put on the back uh, as people come and enter and all that. So you can just... Put your tithe and offering into the box. You know, if you've got little kids, you're sitting there going, I want to teach them the tithe. Well, teach them to put it in the box. Because we're just, we wanted to start this experiment and try it for a few months and see what happens. This is where you can put your prayer request, your, your notes, anything that you need to give us, put in there. The Lord calls us all to give, all of us. 
Some he calls to give more, some he calls to give less. And it's, you know, and through this you would think politics, and, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty conservative person. I'm not a very liberal person when it comes to politics. You know, but I do believe that, that those that can give more should give more. Um, I also believe that those who aren't giving should give in taxes to the government and in, to churches also. Uh, you know, there's got to be a balance there. But I tell you, this is what the Lord is saying here. The Lord is saying, those in leadership always gave more. Did you catch that? The, uh, the other 80-90% gave 20,000 uh, drachmas. When the heads of the families all gave 20,000 drachmas. That's just the way it was. And then in the very last year, in 73, it says, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with certain uh, of the people and the rest of the Israelites, settled in their own towns. He rebuilt the wall, he gave them protection, and he led them, and he said, now let's settle down, let's repopulate, let's rebuild. So that's what he had for us today, so let's pray real quick. Lord, it's always difficult to uh, think about our money and think about giving to you, especially when we tabulate up our bills and put it down on paper. But you call us to give to you. You call us to give back what you've given us. And we thank you for allowing us to keep most of it. We pray that our life doesn't become about money. We pray that our life doesn't come about giving to you, that our relationship is all built around giving. Because we want our relationship built around the love that you have for us in an everyday basis. That you give us back so much more when we follow your commands, when we, we follow your path. And I pray, Lord, that this week, that we do follow your path. That through everything that we do, that we ask, Lord, what could I be doing? But Lord, really, what should I be doing? That's so important to our lives, Lord. Teach us what we should be doing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you when you bless him with his first fruits. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful day today, okay?